Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Simone Abel, an Eastern Suburbs local and CEO of the Capital Punishment Justice Project. CPJP is an Australian not-for-profit organisation that fights for the lives of people facing the death penalty and human rights violations. On today's episode, we discuss the critical work they are doing in providing emergency assistance to evacuate Afghans at risk of death and their work to eliminate the death penalty, including one of their most recent projects to establish an Australian-Japanese reciprocal access agreement. You're listening to Coogee Voice. So we say that we develop legal and policy solutions to save lives and we're a single issue organisation. So we're focused on trying to challenge the death penalty and also extrajudicial killing, which is just the death penalty without any kind of legal process. For me, the death penalty is the most sharp end of human rights abuse, the idea that the state can do the most fundamental thing of taking away an individual's life and often without any kind of due process. So, you know, in the last year, we've seen several um, death sentences handed out over Zoom where individuals are not even in the same location as their lawyer if they're represented. Simone, welcome to the Coogee Voice. How are you going today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm good and it's absolute pleasure to have you on today's show. Now, before we get into talking about the really important work that the Capital Punishment Justice Project is doing, uh, in particular the work that you're immediately doing in Afghanistan, tell us a little bit about how you came to be living in the eastern suburbs. Sure thing. So I actually came to the eastern suburbs relatively recently. I grew up on the North Shore in Sydney and then I was overseas for a really long stint. I was first in New York and then I was in London um, altogether for about 14 or so years um, and came back actually just before the pandemic really kicked off. So really fortunate timing. My dad was unfortunately unwell. And um, we, we happily got stuck here and I happily started working at Capital Punishment Justice Project. And coming back from London, that was for me, it was a no-brainer, you know, if we could manage to live in this area. It was kind of, you know, by the sea. That's where we wanted to be. Top three things you love about the eastern suburbs. I mean, I love the beach, right? Who doesn't? There's a lot of humour to be had just overhearing people's conversations. So that's that definitely kind of makes me laugh, even if I'm in a world of pain with work. And, you know, I just I love actually meeting people because you even when you're out for coffee, because it's quite densely populated, you know, you're often talking to people um, as you're waiting for something. I know some of that's gone at the moment, but I like that. And if there was anything that you could change, what would that be? I mean, it's a tough one. I think we live in a very insular environment, don't we? And we're somewhat sheltered from a lot of the hardship and suffering. I mean, of course, there's a lot happening in the local community too, but it's not always visible. I know you're working a lot on some of those issues, but, you know, I think we're somewhat insulated from what's happening in other parts of Australia and certainly in the world, and and that can be confronting in a way. 
I absolutely hear you. And I just, if you're ever looking for a little bit of reprieve, I would encourage you to check out the Instagram page, Overheard in Sydney. Um, and it can give oh, you a yes. little bit of... <laughs> I love give that. You a little... <laughs> That's another thing I love about... <laughs> <laughs> Quite, quite often they're conversations that are overheard along the coastal walk of the eastern suburbs. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the Capital Punishment Justice Project, can you tell us a little bit about the organisation and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So we say that we develop legal and policy solutions to save lives and we're a single-issue organisation, so we're focused on trying to challenge the death penalty and also extrajudicial killing, which is just the death penalty without any kind of legal process. And we've been around for 20 years and we work throughout the Asia-Pacific region, but we work with trusted partner organisations. So it's really about being directed by them about what's effective in, in the different countries in which we work in and hopefully being a source of support you know, both at the Australian policy level, so trying to work with the government to implement its, um, its strategy for the abolition of the death penalty, but then also actually trying to provide practical support on casework, policy work, advocacy work in those countries around the death penalty. The organisation is currently running emergency assistance to evacuate Afghanis who are at risk of death. I would hope most of our listeners are aware of currently what's happening in Afghanistan. Can you, though, please explain the issues around human rights in Afghanistan at the moment and particularly some of the challenges that people are facing in trying to evacuate? Absolutely. Yeah, so I should say I sort of got into this um, and Capital Punishment Justice Project got into this some months ago really when we started to receive calls from human rights defenders that were known to us that were in Afghanistan sort of voicing concerns about what they foresaw happening um, in the future. Some of them weren't based in Kabul and they could see the sort of direction that things were going in and they were asking what might be done, you know, whether or not they should think about leaving and if they were going to leave, how they might find a way to do that without having a visa, etc. And of course, that's not, you know, that's not what we do. But one of the things that we find is kind of the growing area for Capital Punishment Justice Project is this issue around supporting human rights defenders who work against the death penalty because what we've recognised is that in all the countries in which we work, these individuals are actually seriously risking their life in their work to challenge the death penalty because the state is, you know, behind the death penalty and they're seen as being um, in opposition to the state. So increasingly we're being kind of called upon to try and support some of these people that we work with. And that was sort of how the conversation arose. So we already knew of some individuals at risk and I already had a little bit of insight from, I'd been working at Reprieve in the UK for 10 years prior and we'd done some work in Afghanistan over those years in different ways, also anti-death penalty, anti-torture, those kinds of issues. So I had a bit of a network. And then, of course, um, Kabul fell to the Taliban and suddenly it was just absolutely overwhelming um, the contact and need of these individuals and just the, the severe risks that they're facing, which I can't really do justice to because each and every single person that we've been in contact with is in the 
most serious kind of condition one could possibly imagine. So it just felt like if we were going to be meaningfully assisting at all, we needed to help them to try and survive. Simone, you just indicated that the risk and the need to evacuate people in Afghanistan has actually been flagged for months. What is your feelings, what are your thoughts about the Australian government's approach to date in terms of evacuating those at risk in Afghanistan? You know, it's such a complicated issue. Um, and and I guess the things I'm about to say, I would say for other governments too, who've had a presence in Afghanistan. I mean, I think, you know, in general, our immigration system is just incredibly difficult. I mean, having moved back here in, you know, in 2020 with my children and my husband and them being British citizens, I'm fully aware of what somebody like myself even goes through to get their husband a visa. And, you know, I'm an English speaker, I'm educated, I'm, you know, from a relatively speaking a privileged background. And, you know, I can see how impossible some of these obstacles are for people. So, for example, some of the people that we've helped evacuate, they were fortunate enough to have humanitarian visas, but they all told me that they applied for those some years ago. And, you know, it took a really long time for them to come through. So it's not the case that people haven't been trying. They've been trying. And it's also not the case that it was safe before the Taliban in Afghanistan. It was just different to what it is now in a very fundamental way. But there were a lot of people who were still at risk. And, you know, I think I appreciate that there's a sentiment in Australia, particularly at the moment, that there's some suffering and that, you know, we need to take care of ourselves. But it's inconceivable to me, really, that we can't find space for some of these individuals who are at such severe risk. Simone, just to reiterate what you're saying as well, one of the really complex things that many of my colleagues are now working through, particularly in Southwest and Western Sydney with large Afghani communities, is this huge trauma that is now being put on them. Not only are these communities being faced with lockdowns, food insecurity, financial insecurity, we've got example after example of spouses coming over here hoping to get citizenship, hoping to get residency and then bring their family over and the huge complexity of dealing with visas, dealing with uh, the international relations, even while you're here, is so complex. Um, And you're also, as you've identified, you're talking about people who aren't necessarily natural English speakers. There's English second language, huge bureaucracies. Uh, I just want to say to the that community in Southwest Sydney as well, our heart goes out to you. And I know that there are a lot of people helping you, but I, I cannot imagine how hard this is for those people right now. Um, the Capital Punishment Justice Project stands for a world without death penalty. How many countries still have the death penalty? There are so many countries, but the encouraging news is that the trend is really downward, Um, you know, so ultimately we feel like when we look back in history, we'll see a natural sort of progression towards abolition of the death penalty. Increasingly, there's fewer and fewer countries that carry out the death penalty. And also, you know, although a lot of countries have the death penalty formally within the legal system, they don't necessarily execute people. But that said, there are certain worrying trends. So within our own region, 
which, by the way, is the most prolific uh, region for executions. So by far the vast majority of executions of the world take place in, in Asia. Um, but we're seeing really worrying trends. So, for example, uh, the, in the Philippines for several years now, um, there's been a concerted effort to reintroduce the death penalty. We're doing work there with a local partner to try and challenge that. And then we've got in Papua New Guinea as well, um, unfortunately, a very recent court decision. The death penalty is still on the books there, but there hasn't been an execution for many, many years. And now we're looking at a situation where they may resume execution. So it's certainly an issue in our region. Why is it important that we eliminate the death penalty? And why is this something that people should care about, despite the fact that Australia doesn't have it? I think that for me, the death penalty is the most sharp end of human rights abuse. The idea that the state can do the most fundamental thing of taking away an individual's life and often without any kind of due process. So, you know, in the last year, we've seen several um, death sentences handed out over Zoom where individuals are not even in the same location as their lawyer if they're represented And also they don't have the opportunity to have an interpreter or to understand what's happening. So, you know, it's just the the very most extreme end of the spectrum at which you have things like torture and execution. And it's not to say that all of the other rights abuses aren't very problematic because, of course, I would say that they are. But I think that you can learn a lot about how a society sort of values the dignity of an individual based on whether or not they actually have a system of capital punishment. What's interesting about capital punishment is, you know, it's not the case that so-called kind of westernised countries are all abolitionists. You've got countries like the US, uh, which is a retentionist country. So it's really interesting. You can do some really interesting advocacy um, and make comparisons as well um, in terms of what's happening with the death penalty in places that actually, you know, people don't appreciate have some similarities in terms of how they approach it. One of your current projects is the Australian-Japan Reciprocal Access Agreement. Can you share a little bit about this project? Yeah, absolutely. I think for CPJP, it's a real cause for concern because we're hoping that, you know, it's it won't be implemented on a case-by-case basis with respect to the death penalty. So our fear is that even if in practice there's some kind of an understanding or diplomatic agreement that Australians um, in Japan will not be executed unless we have an unequivocal, you know, written guarantee of that and that that's a kind of cornerstone of the agreement, then we fear that there's sort of a watering down of Australia's principled commitment to abolition and, you know, it's really important, I think, in Australia's foreign policy, um, the government has stated unequivocally it opposes the death penalty in all circumstances for all people. And so I think what we would like to see more of is any bilateral and multilateral agreements having some conditionality around fundamental human rights. Because, you know, the average Australians, we don't necessarily appreciate what's happening day to day in terms of things like information sharing between governments. And if the agreements are not really watertight, then you do unfortunately have situations where even people with the best intentions in the world, you know, working for 
um, agencies, government agencies, they may just be complying with the law, for example, handing over information, but they don't understand that that information might be used to investigate someone who then might be executed, or they don't understand that if there's counter-narcotics aid and it's being used to fund sniffer dogs, for example, at airports, and then somebody's picked up for carrying drugs in Indonesia, they may actually be executed. So we feel quite strongly that it's really important that Australia kind of exercises its, its I guess, its you know, moral position on the death penalty in its relationships with neighbouring countries. Are there any stories or anecdotes that you can share of people that you've been able to successfully evacuate? Yeah, absolutely. And if you go on to our um, current appeal for this, you'll see a really happy photo of some of the people that we were able to assist in evacuating, landing um, and, you know, entering Australia, which was just a very, for me personally, it was one of like the most emotional moments I've had in, in recent years in the work because, you know, often on my work, you work on a case for many years and you might have a successful outcome, but it takes years and years and these people it was kind of two weeks of sustained help and the support of the community in providing the funds that we needed to securely escort them. And then they were here, which was just absolutely incredible. And um, I mean, I don't, re- I don't really know how to kind of appropriately relay this, their story because it was so amazing watching it in real time as it unfolded. But this particular group that were able to come back, uh, CPJP was able to raise funds to securely transport them to the airport in Kabul as a result of, you know, the community getting involved and, and backing us. And when you think of what it actually costs to save a person's life, it's just, you know, mind-boggling how little it costs to get an individual through multiple Taliban checkpoints to an airport and then you know, leverage your relationships with different actors, so Australian Defence Force, other military people that were around the airport to try and help them get inside and also other organisations that we're in contact with um, who are giving us kind of information and intelligence at the moment over there. But this group was the most remarkable group. I mean, for days before they got to the airport, uh, the woman that I was talking to was awake 24-7. I mean, she was in a state of, as you can imagine, constant stress trying to kind of work out how she was going to get out securely. And I think it gave her a lot of comfort to know that she would be escorted. And she got to the airport, which felt quite miraculous in and of itself. And then you would have seen the scenes of what was around the airport. It was completely overwhelming. And people weren't allowed to take very much with them. It was extremely hot. And we were told that their only prospect of getting inside was to make themselves identifiable to the Australian Defence Force. And, of course, the Australian officers were not outside the airport. They were inside. So we were reliant on the British and the American soldiers to identify these people and take them inside in the crowd. So this woman, in order to survive, I mean, I I hope I won't get emotional, but she was just so resilient. She literally went into what looked like a sewerage-infested pit um, full of the dirtiest water, holding her documents above her head. And it was just, you know, we saw it unfold in real time because we had our cameras in the background kind of watching her so that we could try and help the people that we were talking to know what she looked like. And 
it was, you know, it was amazing. And it's just horrible that people have to go through that though. Yeah, I can't actually talk about any of the individual stories without crying because they are, you know, each and every single one of them is just incredible. And yeah, it's very, it's very moving stuff. It is really remarkable though, the work that you're doing. And thank you. Thank you. Can you share any of the successful wins or advocacy that has been done in the space of capital punishment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's been a lot that sort of goes under the radar because we can't usually publicise the cases that we work on, um, particularly because the individuals are so at risk um, in virtually, you know, all the countries that we work in. And there are very difficult conversations, you know, and often the hardest decision is, you know, how do we sort of have those conversations with government and achieve the best outcomes for them without pushing publicly because obviously advocacy can be really effective but sometimes it can really backfire and draw attention to cases and that is not helpful in most of the countries that we work in. But, you know, I think we've had some phenomenal um, success with our partners in Singapore. So Singapore hasn't been able to carry out executions now for um, a little while. So in 2020, there weren't any executions and that we did a lot of work with our amazing, courageous partners there, thinking about uh, the various kinds of legal challenges that we might be able to bring. And that's still very much a work in progress. But, you know, I think it sort of demonstrates that there's a lot of creative sort of strategies that can be adopted to challenge the death penalty in different countries. And, you know, it's it's amazing actually what you can achieve with partner organisations who really, you know, know the landscape, know the cases that they're dealing with and know what's going to be effective and what's not. So we hope that we can play a supporting role in that. Now, Simone, before I let you go, there are three tough questions we ask everyone that comes onto Coogee Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, Ooh. where you can get the best burger, and where sells the best coffee? Go. Tough one. Okay, so I really like to get my coffee at Shook. It's on my road, and I'm I very much enjoy it. I must say, I do love Redleaf Beach. It's just you know completely sublime the scene from there. But I also like Nielsen Park. It's a tough choice. So many good options and burger. Um, I'm really into the burger at Bondi Tony's. Simone, thank you so much for being on the show. If people would like to support or learn more about the work of the CPJP, where should they head to? So if people go to www.cpjp.org.au or you can check us out on Facebook or Twitter um, and we'd love you to join us if you join our database but also you know just make yourself known you can send us an email and lots of people have you know really unique skills that they can contribute so please do get in touch. Simone thank you for joining us on Could You Voice. Thank you so much for having me so lovely to meet you. What a moving interview. Now, if you'd like to support the important work of the CPJP, head to cpjp.org.au. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. <laughs>